0: Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Amy, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do?
1: Hi, I'm Amy Wilson. I am the author, founder, and CEO of Empathy for Change. And the book that I wrote was called Empathy for Change, How to Create a More Understanding World.
0: Amy, what would you say is your personal why? You know, that thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that it's it's definitely related to my book. And when I released it about two and a half months ago, it was it it just like it speaks to my heart and who I am as a person. And when you bring in these two concepts, empathy and change, Um, That's who I am. So number one, it's as the in the empathy side of things. I'm an empath. I'm also a highly sensitive person. And I also um, have a lot of empathy. That's my biggest strength. And if you take the Gallup Strength Finders test, you know, you take all those things and it spouts out what, what it is for you. So empathy is, is the number one strength. And I thought it was like, I was like, what is this crap? Right. <laughs> when, I, when I got it, I was like eh, empathy. But then as I've gotten older and gone and done my work, um, done this work, I realized that empathy is my superpower, you know, and my extra superpower. And then also, um, change is another theme that's throughout my life. I am a change maker. I am a public entrepreneur and I also, um, I, you know, I've been a director of innovation in many different aspects. And so I always change and, and, and try to, um, challenge the status quo, which is kind of sometimes, sometimes, sometimes to my detriment and sometimes to my, um, <laughs> success.
0: Are there any pieces of media, whether a podcast book video, or some other such thing that you would recommend the folks listening to go ahead and check out?
1: I, I write about this, this one in my, um, in my book because it's so important. It's great storytelling. Um it's a through line from NPR. Um not sure if you've heard of it, but it it the whole theme behind it is to look to the past to understand the present. And it it is so educational. Like I've learned so much about it. Like I just um earlier this week they had a session on the Black Panther movement and what, what that means for today. And um, so there's just so many, like so much richness there. And also, uh, you know, as we're going on this journey of like anti-racism, learning about ourselves and who we are, um, this podcast, which is a smaller, l- lesser known podcast, but so impactful it's called Seeing White. And so, so good. It's down in, um, from um, Duke University, I think. Um, and you can look at it on, on Spotify. They have a playlist around it, but it's really this one um, it's a documentary set series where it's just looking at like what whiteness is and how that's showing up in the world. And that has been so incredibly like impactful for me. And I share it with so many people like of so many origins because they're just like, I didn't know. Right. And if you don't know, then you, you know, you're not going to, um, make change and you have to have awareness. So those are the ones that like really get me. Oh. And then one last one I love is hello Monday by it's on LinkedIn. It's the changing nature of work. And it's a conversation around that. Um, that, you know, a lot of these are podcasts, but yeah, I, those are the most impactful things for me right now especially in the pandemic.
0: I think this is a good time for us to switch gears a bit and we can start talking about, uh, I guess, like the main topic for, for this podcast episode. You know, over the uh, past year, you know, you've, you've released a book, you've found an organization that both share the name Empathy for Change, which I believe you talked a bit about in your personal why. But if we're going to start, I like, I like to start at why with these sorts of conversations. And to start there again, what would you say was your why for like wanting to create both the organization and to write this book?
1: I know uh, there's lots of indicators and a lot of people have been talking about it, uh, that that we have a big empathy gap, especially in the United States. And I go back into history to see where that empathy gap, you know, um, comes from, but also who historically has talked about it. Um, and I think that empathy gap is creating a lot of, challenges for our country today and our world. And so I the way I structure the book, um, which is kind of how I'm like structuring a lot of the things I do in my, my work in this, my startup and my collaborative I put together for this is exploring this thing called the empathy deficit. Um, so the first chapter is really about, you know, our empathy deficit. So owning it, owning why do we have empathy deficit because there's a lot of misunderstanding around what empathy is. It truly is. And how do you practice it? Right. And so it's a skill um, that, that anybody can learn, but many people choose not to learn it. Right. So, so just having this awareness around this, that, that's something that really um, jumps out to me because the, the deeper why for that is I have been in consulting. I've been in working in the white house. I've worked in, profits I've worked in startups I've done I've done all these different places and the moments that I felt the most like lost was when I wasn't getting empathy from from people and it wasn't it wasn't engaging with people in a in a very authentic way it felt like it was stilted or something like that was happening and it gets in the, and, and so I just was like, I, I know, you know, and stepping into my truth and my, my experience there um, empathy is so crucial to interacting. And I just did a, a pod uh, like a empathy power up yesterday. We talked about empathy as a skill is like hard skill or soft skill. And what we're finding is that empathy is not just, it's not a soft skill anymore. It's an essential skill, it's always has been, but we've relegated it to this place that seems like it's lesser than. Um, And I think it's just essential skill that we all like have inherently, but we're not really using it in the best way. And we could be doing a lot more healing in the world. And, um, you know, research is showing that our workplaces, the like our communities don't have the empathy that we need to thrive. So like I was like, what's a better thing to do than to try to have more empathy in the world? That's my that's my why.
0: And we've used that that term empathy a, a whole lot in this conversation so far for for, for good reason. And uh, one thing I found interesting is both on your your website and in your book, you talk a bit about trying to define what empathy is. Can you talk a bit about this perspective for folks that are listening?
1: Yeah. So empathy is, is if you look on the front of my book, it has three images. It has a head, a heart, and a hand. And I had this realization that empathy, there's three different kinds of empathy. Most people don't know that that's the case. And empathy requires you to have not just, you know, just Uh, you know, taking somebody's perspective or a lot of people say it's when they talk about empathy, it's like, I'm, you know, sitting in the shoes of somebody else. Right. That's number one thing that people say when they talk about empathy. And for me, that was like, I, that just seems very nebulous. It's like, I'm just going to like, well, how do, how do I do that? What does that mean? How do I feel like you're doing that? And it doesn't seem like it's very action oriented. It's just like, okay. I'm just taking your perspective. And that, that is really related to like the, so the head is, is called cognitive empathy, which is this brain, the, like, how can I take your perspective? But we've also, the research is showing that empathy is both a skill and a choice that you made. Like I referred to a few minutes ago is that empathy, since it's a skill and a choice you can, you, can, you can work that muscle. It's like an, it's a going to the empathy gym, right? Some of my friend, colleagues say, you know, like you can work that muscle and it's like building that cognitive empathy. Like, am I taking your perspective in the right way? But the heart piece is where is where you, the emotions come in. And what's interesting is that in empathy, it requires you to have an awareness of yourself, how you show up in the world. And also your your emotions, right? Can I pick up on? Am I feeling sadness? Am I feeling like anger? Am I feeling all these different things? And then re- recognize that in somebody else. So it's that's a deeper level of like understanding. And then the third one is the hand, which which often is, and that one is called um, that one's called um, compassionate empathy or simply compassion. A lot of people talk about, right? And when I when what that version of empathy says is it's i'm willing to help you if needed so you're opening up to your them you're doing the things you're you're like taking their perspective you're feeling them but you're willing to help but what is what I, what i found and based on my own career in working in change is that that's great that you're willing to help but then help right Take the action. Right. And that's that's what I'm I'm saying is that after being working in innovation for more than a decade and and being a director of this is that really what we're trying to do in in innovation. It's such a buzzword (laughs) um, is is talk about positive change, creating a better future. And in order to do that, you need to have empathy plus action. So you need to bring those two together. You need to act upon the empathy that we have for each other. And that's been lost, I think, in in our society in a bigger way.
0: An idea that that you communicate in, in your media is that this idea that change is more difficult in the modern era or in modern times than it might have been in the past. What is it about the time we live in that makes change harder than maybe, say, in the past sometime?
1: The, the piece about that is... When we talk about change today, because of a number of factors that has happened, globalization, climate change, you know, I was just listening to a podcast this morning about climate change and the, the stakes that we've got going. There is a lot of complexities that, that has hap- that's changed over time. We definitely have more people in the world than ever we've ever had, right? And it's just getting bigger and and Larger um, pandemics, right? Like there has been pandemics before, but it's this one is like very far-reaching as well and and hitting us in a hard way. So those are those are specific things that are leading us to having a more complex world. And um, there's this phrase called VUCA, which is stands for we're in a living in like a VUCA world, which is volatile, uncertain, complex. And ambiguous. This actually comes. You mentioned earlier you were in the military, um, and so it comes from the War College, from the, the Army War College, I think. Um, and it talks about it. They they started realizing in the 1990s that the world is getting a becoming a lot different, right? Than than we have seen in the past, um, and more complex. And so, in order for us to change. We need to understand and sense what the world is doing, and they and often we talk about solutions and problems and solutions. Like there's a silver bullet solution to everything that we do, and I saw I see this all the time in innovation. It's like okay, you have a problem and a solution, a solution. But what I talk about in my book and the people that I talk to from across the the country and the world mentioned that it's not just a silver bullet solution. It's a Compendium of solutions. It's approaches, and then those approaches that are happening in the world um, need to be kind of like need to be tested and make sure that you're having the right impact that you're having you having on the world. And the last thing I'll say about this is that what's really interesting is that what's happening with um, you know the Chauvin trial and like death of George Floyd and there's a lot more awareness of like white supremacy culture and how that's showing up in our world, that adds a level of complexity because it is showing that the systems that we're in is broken and, and the system is creating the space for us. And so, so because we're affected by the system, that's, that adds another level of complexity that we're, we're examining now. Right. And that, that makes things so much harder to do change, but it's necessary. And that's the, systemic change that we need to do to really make progress.
0: In in this uh, VUCA world that, that you described, that, that's a new term for me. I'm going to have to to remember that one. It's it's common that we can have systems and cultures that create situations where the incentives are out of whack. You know, if I think back on political science courses I've taken, what, I, what that makes me think of is these situations where you can have like coordination traps where it's like there's people that have to, if they would coordinate their actions... They would end up in a place that was like a better social good, but the incentives make it hard to do that. So you end up in a place that's less preferred or uh, commitment problems where it's like a similar idea. Maybe like choices have to be made in an order. And if only one person you know, or one group could commit to what their choice was going to be and communicate, well, then you'd end up in the good spot. But because that doesn't happen, you end up in a less preferred situation or even externalities problems where it's kind of like there's an incentive maybe for inaction. But if everyone decided to all act, well, then we'd end up in, that again, that better spot. And I would be curious to hear your thoughts on those situations and and ways to approach driving change in environments that maybe have those sorts of problems already baked in.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's interesting, interesting things when like, for example, when the pandemic happened, it changed a lot of people's like it just like took over. Um, the entire agendas of organizations. I was working at the time with um, the city of Oakland when the Aspen Tech Policy Hub and they had a, like an $80 million shortfall because of COVID. Um, so when I think about that in a bigger way, you know, externalities, problems that push folks uh, towards outcomes that aren't ideal. That's what's interesting is that what I've learned in, Teaching innovation, working in innovation-related work, is that we have to live in um, There's um, some other works that is important is to be like everybody talks about being agile, right? And like agile, um, and that comes from development. You know, as a developer, it's just realizing like the way. Like one big example is being like the difference between waterfall and agile is is kind of like how we need to manage the world right waterfall like you know for those who you know who are on the the podcast who don't understand the difference between those two things in development is that you know waterfall is being like you create requirements up front and you say these are all the things that this thing needs to have like that i'm building and then at the you pretty much build it over time and then in the end you have Hopefully, right, have that thing that you create the requirements at the beginning is what you have at the end. But it does not increase in create a space for these externalities. It does not say that, like, oh, this, you know, you know, the direction needs to change because, you know, a pandemic hits, right? So like, what if a pandemic hits in the middle of this thing and you're like, oh gosh, we, we can't do the things that we had hoped for? On the other end of the spectrum. Is, is agile and agile, this agile development is talking about, you might have at the beginning a series of things that you um, like, which they really call a backlog of activities that you wanna do. And you kind of envision what the, you think this is, but it's a lot of um, working with agile. And then we also have like lean startups concepts of building something, measuring and learning from that experience which is a lot of this, like when we talk about change, so you build something and then you test it with people and you measure the effectiveness of what you do. Um, And it's a lot of, it's like a dialogue, I would say between you and the people that are using the work that you do and the things that you have. So it's for me, it's like that agile, like mindset, is so necessary, um, and you, you know you might you are going to build this thing over time, but then you allow for those externalities to come in, and to to have a gut check, right? So, and often, this is related to something I was saying earlier: is like we have an intention, but then the impacts that we have, often we don't measure as much as impact, um, you know, especially when we talk about human centered design there is this, this desire for us to have this intention to be impact, to have impact. And then we don't measure the, if we don't measure the impact and how it's affecting the system and the world that we're in, then we are creating, we are creating in a bubble. And I think that's, that's something that we need to, to talk about. Like when we have, we're dealing with these externalities, we need to be able to have work on our sensing. And there's two activities that, I, I mentioned in the book where it's called the OODA loop, which is also something coming from the military, which stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. And it is, it is, you know, is it very, um, in that space of being like, you're observing, all right, make your gut decision. You orient yourself, like, what is this? And then you decide upon the, the course of action and then you act upon it. That that's a activity, and then there's also this this framework called Kinnefin, which is um, which is Welsh for habitat, and it is this great framework that shows that talks talks about we're in this world where it's like on one side is an ordered world, and the other side is an unordered world. We when we're in VUCA, sometimes we're in an unordered space. So one of the it's like four quadrants, one of the quadrants could be chaos, right? Which is where everything's unordered. And this is just one example, and there's three others in there, but not to overwhelm everybody with theory here, but if you have this space where you are in a space where where chaos is happening, you do not have a mindset for how chaos is happening. So like, so in the middle of a hurricane, for example, everything's topsy-turvy. You just have to act and then see what patterns emerge over time and then then you can you know so it's that responding first and then finding patterns but if you're in an ordered world where you can understand what's happening um, it's different where uh, yeah so the the ordered world essentially talks about um, how can we you know we can if we have best practices we can use that
0: a theme I've noticed in your work uh, seems to be this idea that storytelling can be an effective tool for building empathy. Is there an approach to doing this that you've come across in in your time in this work that you've seen as being especially effective?
1: Yeah. um, Well, storytelling is so, so important. Definitely. Um, I have. So I've one of the things I didn't mention earlier is I I, on the on the side of I've worked in a documentary film organization in D.C. um, to help People tell stories of other people. And then also there's an organization in D.C. that I've been involved with for many years called Story District. And it's the whole theme behind that is us sharing our personal stories, getting up on stage. Like Story District is there's a theme and people tell stories based on that theme. And I have been steeped in that kind of world um, for about 15 years almost 20 years now and being in a space that allows you to share your story just is like, there's not a lot of places that have that today, right. That have a place where we can come together and say the power of an individual story and everybody else's stories that are out there. So when I think about that, like that's, that's the the culture. And when I look at, you know, the aforementioned like lack of empathy in a lot of our workplaces there's an absence of story there's an absence of of work um, that we see um of like of personalization so i think when we talk about you know something that's especially effective is being able to share pieces of yourself and aspects of yourself in through story is important in the workplace but it's also a mixture of being like trying to figure out who you can trust and who you can trust yourself with that that story, because you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the systems, like I mentioned before, is is not is not working as as we want to. It's, it might be it's like uh, not safe for you to share your story. So, how do we get into more spaces where you feel safe and can trust um, others to have that? So, I would say, share your story with people your personal story and things that that matter to you with people that you can trust, that you can find in your workplace.
0: As you talk there, I, I something I hear, and, and this is actually something I think about often in my professional life, is this idea of uh, trying to create a space of psychological safety. So, you know, leading a team of developers, that's often a thing that I'm wondering, like, how can I do that to make sure that, like you're talking about, that they can share a piece of themselves in, in the work and do so in a way that feels, you know, okay to them. So for others out there that might be wanting to do the same thing, uh, what, what sort of advice would you give them as they kind of, you know, move towards that goal?
1: So towards psychological safety, I think, number one, find people who are authentic, I think, and, and authentic and listen. And, and those are the people that you want to spend the most time around, because you don't necessarily feel like you don't you don't feel like you are that person's going to stab you in the back, or or like that person's not going to take your idea. But it's hard to to suss that out in a workplace, right? And so it's hard to trust that freely. But but I think as we see with empathy, for example, in empathy, um, people you can sense you know in your gut. That you're not getting empathy from somebody, right? So a lot of it is just like let's get in touch with ourselves, um, and our like our and how we feel, right? And the feel in the moment with people. Like if there's something like I've met so many people who I'm like I don't really inherently trust this person. There's something about this person that I don't trust, and my spidey sense is coming out. So I think that's something that like to be in touch with that, and then also. There's a lovely quote that um, is that the person who founded Under Armour says um, that trust is earned in droplets and lost in buckets. And that quote like, is just really something I bring with me. Um, somebody shared it with me once and I was like, you know what, Like this idea of trust is that the more authentic you are, the more you share your story, the more you are open about, you know what, I'm in the, the pandemic is happening and I am, I'm struggling, right? When, when you know everybody else might be struggling too, that opens a window for you to be able to, as a leader in particular, um, opens a window to say for others to share. And it's so so incredible when you can actually share that. And, um, and then on top of that, just listening. Like I just, in my, in my number one thing that I do in one-on-ones with people, is just like, I just sit there and listen and repeat back to them what I'm hearing. Right. And it's such a space to be like, I feel fully heard. And that's, what's really fascinating is feeling like people, when you repeat back to them, what they're saying, like number one, you're, you're able to, you know, say, you know, you have to focus. Number two, they hear what they're saying. So they're able to reflect back Reflect on what they just said.
0: Thinking about the tools we've talked about so far, I'm reminded of some keynote content I came across when I was doing a little bit of that prep research, and you mentioned this idea of there being a mapping between empathy and equity. So I'd be curious, like, how can we use empathy as a way to support that drive towards equity?
1: That's actually something that's key to one of the things that I've been talking in a lot of the civic tech spaces recently, um, and I just hosted a clubhouse last week with Code for America on this exact topic. Um, and I'm going to be doing an encore presentation at the Code for America Summit, the snaps to that, um, um, on the same topic. And what is happening, so it's kind of an interesting concept because if we look at the way, um, so we talk about equity and we usually con- contrast equity with equality. Equality, is equal access to the to two things right um, and then the second one equity is equal equal outcomes right so they're not the same they're not the same thing so that goes into impact like equity is really the impact that our policies have our projects or services that the government has and so um, one way that we can we can look at that is like through the lens of empathy. If you really take empathy to this place of being like, I'm here. Like I said before, the head, the heart, the hand mentality. Instead of instead of just being like, oh, I'm just gonna put myself in your shoes. That's not helping anybody. That's not you know changing the world in in a good way. Um, that's just you know that's that's um, not the best way to think about it when we think about empathy. when when we think about equity in particular, there's this idea of humility um, is also, or being humble is really important, like to to come with empathy, is realizing that idea of um, humility is like, I'm not better than anybody else. Um, And and what's interesting is that that first piece of empathy, um, which is the head, the cognitive empathy you're not even going to have empathy for somebody if you do not value them as a person, because that's what the research is showing: is that like you're not even able to do anything more if you don't think that that person is is valued. And so that brings in this idea of like dignity: that we all have this this underlying belief that we're all inherently valuable and and have worth just by existing. And I think in a lot of the discourse that we have is that it's always an us versus them mentality. It's like either or. Like, um, especially when we, when we go to the insurrection that happened at the Capitol, there's this, this mentality of being like, there's somebody who's right and there's somebody who's wrong. And there's so many gray areas in there. So it's at the end of the day, like empathy and equity go hand in hand, and you need to have both of those together. Because when it comes to equity in particular, we need to be able to like understand, you know, in design in particular when we're doing civic tech, is that when we're designing something, we need to have this equity lens that allows us to say, number one, we are we are aware of the power that what we do has. And number two, we're looking at the agency of the people who we're we're engaging with often it's very vulnerable populations like Medicaid as um, an example. It's like you're working with people who are um, very poor in this country, and they're and how can we help give this agency to people who are on the ground who are to to change the world around them? And that's where the the change comes in. Is like there's we have the power to shift. We can we have the ability. And power to shift, um, shift the power to people who are on the ground to give them more say. And as designers in the civic tech space, we are of responsibility to make sure that what we hear, change does happen, right? Because if 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 nothing changes, you're just you're just using that person. You're just using that story. And that story is valuable and important. And we need to be able to like make real change that happens in the world and I move mean, real progress. And you know, we're starting to do that a little, little more with civic tech, but I think that's where the equity and empathy comes hand in hand is that the more empathy you're going to have and the more, you know, community you build, the better off you're going to be um, you know, having that shift to power dynamic.
0: Way back at the beginning of our conversation, there were a couple of roles you talked about. And uh, I do wanna maybe dig in a little more and, and hear a little bit more about those experiences uh the first one of those that comes to mind is your involvement in the aspen tech policy hub i uh in my research beforehand i, I saw that you worked on something called the people powered or people-powered policy i gathered that the initiative sought to use technology to improve the connection between city government and constituents uh, Can you talk a bit about what that experience was like developing a program like that and maybe tell us a little bit about it
1: yeah, absolutely. I'm inspired, um, connecting back to the equity that we just had um, conversation, I'm inspired by one of the people I I profile in my book called Antoinette Carroll. She created this organization called the Creative Reaction Lab and trying to tackle issues of systemic racism and redesigning these systems. And so I was inspired by her to go and, um, and, and, and apply to the Aspen Tech Policy Hub, because I realized, how can I take that one step further? How can I take these ideas of tackling big systemic problems and using that to affect policy, which, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the people who shape policy shape the world and, and, and the world around us. And so... I, I just thought there was like a, a loftier goal that we, I could reach with this. And so people powered policy is at the heart of that. So the idea behind it is, is the, the nature of storytelling and the importance of storytelling to actively participate, to have people who are affected by the policies actively participate in shaping the policy. So, and one, there's two sides to people power policy. On one side, there is a a website where, that we, we envisioned and did some mock-ups on that shows this is what the website might look like so you can collect stories, you can collect thoughts and questions about a topic area that might be important. So one of them we had in, in Oakland, California, where I was testing this out in, is uh, housing is a major problem there. Um, and so what if we, we had a, sec- a space where people can talk about you know, what are the stories, what are the questions, what are the concerns that they have around housing so that you can have a direct line from the city government to people on the ground. And it's not just um, requiring us to take these stories, but it's also taking things like, what are people saying on social media? Using like artificial intelligence to understand what are people saying in Twitter, on Facebook, on, on LinkedIn, et cetera, mostly on Twitter and Facebook to about these different topics and how do we create this, this space where we can be well-informed about the policy that we, we are going to be writing, right? Instead of requiring people to come to City Hall, Um, and especially in a pandemic that's majorly challenging, right, to bring people to C- City Hall. But that's, that's the current dichotomy, is being like there are people who can't afford... Um, or don't have the time, or don't really, you know, aren't engaged with civic, the civic side of things. So we're requiring them to come to City Hall and, and participate in this policy making. But it's very, there's so many reasons why they're not, right? And, we, and so we, we talked on both sides of the aisle. We talked to people who are affected by policy um, in the most uh, vulnerable places in Oakland. And then we also talked to city council members so the second piece of people power policy is focusing on, on, on how do we get the city government to say, say, I want to change my digital engagement practices and the work that I do. So a big chunk of this was changing policy just so that we can have a digital engagement strategy so that we're going to go into from the government side of things to say, we're gonna, we're gonna lean more into the digital engagement so that we can have a website that allows this policy to be written. So it's like that's that's what we found out in our on our short time when we were in Oakland before the pandemic hit, that that there was two sides to the story. It's not you just create a website and then policy will change. It's creating a bridge from the website and the stories that are there um, to City Hall, which then can shape and inform policy.
0: The other initiative that that you mentioned Way back at the beginning that I think also is reflective of the skills and like the tools we've talked about is your work that you did uh, in uh, Presidential Innovation Fellowship, I believe, was when you uh, did the uh, better government movement, which I believe you were, you helped found. And, it's, and that seems to have the goal of trying to like empower folks that are in different agencies of federal government to be able to affect change in those organizations that they're in. Uh, which sounds a lot like this kind of innovation space work that's been a theme in like in the, our conversation so far. Can you talk a bit about that initiative and the, the sort of work it does?
1: So Better Government Movement. Um, one big thing I learned from my experience, you know, that I brought into my work as a PIF, when I worked at Booz Island Hamilton, I realized that empathy, um, I mean, empathy is, is really key in the work that we do. But in order to really make change happen, is culture change happens because of a movement and not a mandate that happens. That's a big thing that I learned in the Booz Allen, my Booz Allen days is being like, you know what, you can, and that's that's a key part of change, right? In a lot of ways. People will change themselves, right? You can't force people to change. Right. And and that is that's something that is really fascinating. And so I really took that to heart when I heard heard that idea or thought about that idea is like, that's why I call this a movement because um also as we were transitioning between the Obama to the Trump administrations, we started talking about this word innovation might not be something that like this new administration might embrace because it might be a tie to the last administration. So we started thinking about like, what are the outcomes we're hoping to have? And that, that, that was that's where we started talking about better government at the end of the day. We want to have a government that works for most of the people most of the time, right? <laughs> and and isn't something that is like um, you know is, is is able to serve the people, right Because you know it's for the people by the people. Um, and so we think about this in a bigger concept of like with a better government. And so I kind of took this idea of movement. And better government together and uh and and started thinking about how can we create change the it's a power again, this idea of power. And how do we get the power within ourselves as public servants um, to to actually start stepping up and saying, I'm going to be the change that I want to see in the world, because that's how real change is going to happen in a bigger way. So how do we get, get a cadre of people who are those change agents in the world and make that bigger um, change that we wanna see in the world? So um, that, that, that was the whole idea behind the Better Government Movement is to build community with each other um, and to create a space where they can practice and get better at doing, doing the work that is necessary. So if their agencies don't have it, have have that ability to do that, they can practice it with us. And then they can they can build it in a bigger way. Um and the the last thing I'll say about that with a better government movement is when we talk about the better government movement in a bigger way, um the work that we did is is just um just like really interesting and incredible and we would we would have like a design challenge where we would teach people you know different skills human centered design lean agile um over, over a series of 16 weeks or so um, and they would take real world government problems and tackle those together um so so we could have a space where where people can feel comfortable and i forgot the last piece of what i was going to say um with that aspect of it but you know that's at the end of the day is like shifting power within ourselves to know that we have that magic wand, that we have that magic wand and we can use the magic wand to make change happen. And knowing that you have a community really matters in the world.
0: Amy, as our conversation gets to its tail end here, a thing we try to do on these episodes is leave some space at the end so that you can share with us what you think we should leave this conversation thinking about, Uh, concluding thoughts, as it were. So for you in this conversation we had today, what do you think those are?
1: Yeah, I think for me, the concluding thoughts that I have is is the the current theme that I have is that you know we cannot wait for somebody else to change the world for us. We need to step up and be that be part of that that change that we want to see. Um, so bringing in the Gandhi quote again, like the the change we wish to see in the world. Um, and like we're and like and Obama says something to the effect of, you know, we're the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we are the ones who are going to change the world. And that's what I leave my book. Uh, my book is on a hopeful note to say that like we I give a ton of ways we can go into our society, into our systems, um, into our individual or even our teams and be, be the change we hope to see. So I think that's really what we're, we're doing and we're seeing a big influx of that happening and saying people standing up and for things that they value. So I think I just encourage people to, to join, join like the movement around like changing government for the better and changing our systems and rethinking as like, is this work that we're doing, is it necessary and are is it is it important for us to you know how important is it for us to build the next iPhone um, as opposed to to really taking a service that is going to affect millions of people's lives and um, in a positive way? So I think you know I, I guess it's also a call to action for people to join the civic tech movement, become a presidential innovation fellow. We actually have the PIF. PIF program or which is Presidential Innovation Fellow for short, um, we're hiring they're they're doing their 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 hiring right now for it. So I would say, you know, try to try to join the movement, get a taste of this. And then when you get a taste of it, you're like, oh, I want to keep doing it. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where I am in my world.
0: Well, Amy, again, thank you so much for for joining us on Civic Tech Chat. I, I have no doubt folks are gonna find some things they can take into their day after hearing this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.